Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And this week, goodbye energy politics, which had been going quite well for the government. And hello, Bill Shorten and the AWU, which is blown up in the government's face. I gave Dennis Atkins, National Affairs Editor at the Courier-Mail, a call to find out why this government is so accident-prone. David Tudope, CEO at Macquarie Telecom Group, speaks about the black hole of the NBN. Market strategist Evan Lucas digests what's been going on market-wise. And ANZ senior economist Joe Masters goes through Wednesday's inflation figures and tells us what they mean for interest rates. But first, here's Dennis Atkins on the latest bit of foot-shooting by the Turnbull government. Joining me now is Dennis Atkins, the National Affairs Editor of the Courier-Mail. So Dennis, uh, this week's politics have been ta- overtaken, the, the energy politics has been overtaken uh, by another uh, go at Bill Shorten and the AWU, but uh, it seems already to have blown up in the uh, government's face. Yes, yes. This is part of uh, what the government calls, um, you know, uh, privately their, their <coughs> excuse me, kill Bill strategy. So this is they they think uh, that if they can get rid of Bill Shorten or tear him down in the eyes of the public, that'll improve their standing in the polls. Now, I think that's a, a fundamental misreading of, of what their problem is. They're, you know, their problem is more about uh, what the public thinks about them rather than what the public thinks about Bill Shorten. But you know, that, it's their strategy, and they've been pushing on with it for some time. Um, now. They've always had this fascination with Bill Shorten's time at the AWU when he was National Secretary and Victorian State Secretary. And they've latched on to the fact that 11 years ago, uh, he authorised a $100,000 donation to the Get Up uh, organisation. And there are also some other donations given to Labor candidates. Um, uh, this this uh, ended up uh, with a raid on the AWU offices in Sydney and Melbourne on Tuesday evening. Uh, the media were there, and from then on, all hell broke loose. Uh, the, the, the Labor Party and the union uh, cried out that it was a witch hunt and that this was sending in the police to do the government's dirty work. The government said that the Labor, Labor Party and the unions had no respect for the rule of law. Uh, but... Um, it soon turned to sort of how did the media find out? That was the question by late yesterday afternoon. And by dinner time yesterday, we found out that the media had in fact found out by a tip-off from the minister, Michaela Cash, the employment minister's office. And um, she is now into her third hour of grilling uh, at the Senate Estimates Committee on everything uh, that she did and said and didn't do and didn't say. Uh, so it's been um, death by a thousand questions for her. The same sort of tactic backfired on Tony Abbott when he had the Royal Commission uh, into unions, which was meant to also uh, nail Bill Shorten. But that not only didn't result in an increase, an improvement in uh, Tony Abbott's polling, it actually worsened it and he ended up getting sacked as Prime Minister and replaced by Malcolm Turnbull. I wonder if the same thing's going to happen to Malcolm. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I think that, you know, this is not good for the government. You know, most Australians, I think, would look on this and and say say that the government is, um, you know, wasting its time on something that is a very old issue, doesn't amount to much. Uh, I mean, sending in 32 Australian Federal Police officers to look for some documents from what 
to most people would be a, a pretty run-of-the-mill union um, activity 11 years ago seems like overkill. And I think it seems like overkill because it is overkill. Uh, now, we've got to remember, um, I mean, you're quite right what you say about uh, when Tony Abbott set up the Royal Commission and went after Bill, Bill Shorten and, and that uh, fell flat on its face. But you also got to remember that in 2009, um, Malcolm Turnbull tried to decapitate Kevin Rudd uh, with... with um, Allegations that Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan had, had given a favour to um, a political mate in, in Brisbane, um, uh, a guy who had loaned a ute to uh, Kevin Rudd, and it became known as the Ute Gate Affair. And, and that turned around and blew up in Malcolm Turnbull's face um, because it was all concocted evidence. Um, you know, Malcolm Turnbull has got form when it comes to overreach. And, and this smells like overreach to me. Uh, he'll pay a price for it, whether it's uh, as heavy a price uh, as, as you suggested just then, I'm not sure. But um, you know, this is not going to help him inside the party. I, I think Makaya Cash will survive. I think she'll tough it out. Uh, her, her press secretary has walked the plank and he's um, off somewhere in Canberra licking his wounds at the moment. But... Uh, it's 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 turned uh, you know what was going to be week two of prosecuting uh, what the government thought was a positive policy in energy into uh, you know an absolute disaster for the government. It's uh, it's it's quite extraordinary how tech-handed this this mob are when it comes to the politics of politics. Meanwhile, they are still trying to sell their uh, national energy guarantee. And in fact, I noticed um, uh, there were some pictures of Malcolm Turnbull and Josh Frydenberg um, kneading some dough uh, at a bakery. And it seems to have been in Malden. They seem to have shown up in Malden, in Victoria's uh, countryside, uh, doing that. So, And that appears to have been aimed at energy as well. So they are still sort of uh, beetling away at that in the background, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, no, they're, they're definitely... Um uh, working hard on it, and and Josh Frydenberg uh, is working harder than anyone. Um, he's a he's a very uh, hard working and ambitious young fellow. Um, you know they, they they are hoping that they can get this going, and that, that the public will uh, you know, believe that um, they've got a plan and they're going to do something about uh, the way um, that energy is. Um, generated, retailed, and uh, the people pay for it. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a difficult ask because um, you know, people don't notice energy prices coming down. They tend to notice them going up. Um, and also, I, I mean, I always thought that it was a bit of a, uh, an extraordinary brave thing to do uh, when Malcolm Turnbull decided to adopt energy as his own policy. I mean, it's, you know, it's something that's previously been run by the states. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he had to do something and uh, uh, he's going to keep um, marshalling on. Um, I mean, Josh Frydenberg is absolutely convinced that this is a winner. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But it's, it, it's a winner that's going to pay dividends over the longer rather than the short term. Uh, and in politics, the short term can uh, uh, catch up with you a lot faster than the longer term.
Joining me now is David Tudhope, the CEO of Macquarie Telecoms, which is one of the many RSPs, retail service providers, battling to make some headway with the NBN. As a user of the NBN, what's your t- uh, take on um, the problem there? Macquarie is a retail service provider, um, and uh, the challenge is that uh, the way the industry has been structured in terms of the way it deals with the NBN, uh, there has been a um, uh, very poor customer service delivered, um, and there's some barriers to entry that are um, making this problem much worse than if competition would have sought these things out if it does in other industries. So, um, so what do you think? This, what do you think should be done? How do you think it should be restructured to make it better? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, I mean, first of all, the um, absence of competition due to the um, consolidation of the industry over the last few years has meant that um, retail service providers have been been acquiring wholesale providers that link the um, poise, the points of interconnect to um, the uh, networks and uh, the challenge with that is that uh, that, that consolidation has meant that um, only a few providers are uh, actually delivering services throughout Australia and the very poor customer service standards that they offer today uh, are being magnified in the NBN environment um, because only, only three or four of those providers are able to do, provide services on NBN. Um, so but the but the idea the service. idea with the M, the idea with the MBN was that it would be the wholesale provider and that there'd be this hundreds of um, competitive re- retail service providers. But you're saying that it's not working out that way. So ten years ago, when the decision was made to create 121 poise, there were large numbers of wholesale service providers that some were quite local and regional, others were much more national. And there's lots of opportunity to link up to the 121 poise. Today, there's not. Um, and as a result of, of this consolidation of the industry between the retail and wholesale sectors, um, the, there's only a small number. And they've got very poor standards of customer service. Uh, and they have little, little competitive incentive to, uh, to change that. Uh, instead, the focus is taking, taking cost out of both the customer service standards as well as the network. So would reducing the number of points of interconnect solve that? Uh, reducing the points of interconnect and using existing fibre that NBN has um, would completely solve that because it would enable um, competitive, normal competitive forces to, um, to, to regulate uh, things like customer service, things like the um, performance of the network, the throughput um, uh, for customers, and customers can have, can as a result, move between providers to find the one that best fits their needs. It also means the innovation that occurs at the customer, customer level um, from some of these newer dynamic providers um, uh, actually uh, flows through to NBN, not just existing services. Isn't there also the problem that the price is the, the the fundamental wholesale price that the NBN needs to charge is very high as well? Uh, there's no question that um, NBN's 
pricing the amount into the CBC um, is, is, a, is a factor in this. Um, it, is a, it, is a, it is a high price, but equally the, the way it's structured also, I think, does significantly contribute to this challenge. So um, can you see this getting better? I mean, you're, you're kind of involved in it and you're, you're day-to-day having to deal with it. Can you see any improvement occurring, the way things are structured? No. I think uh, things will get worse for uh, Australian consumers, Australian businesses. Every month that more services are cut over to the NBN, um, this, uh, this dynamic will just accelerate. Um and the level of complaints you hear through grassroots media like social media, like uh, talkback radio, um, sort of communication channels that aren't filtered uh, in the same way as you know, reported media, I guess, going to accelerate. Um, and just the groundswell of um, uh, Australians experiencing very poor conversion experiences to the NBN, very poor service once they're converted, very poor, this poor network throughputs will continue. And until competition is brought to bear and the normal competitive forces kick in and regulate behaviour, um, this will just get worse and worse. And over the next two years, I think there'll be a, a huge groundswell of Australians who just fundamentally recognise this is not right. Uh, you've seen that already in the statistics from the telecommunications industry ombudsman, where the telecommunications ombudsman receives four times the number of complaints as the banking industry ombudsman from banking customers. Uh, and that level of complaints for teleco- telecommunications ombudsman is, is increasing uh, from this already very high level a year ago, um, and it's gone up nearly 40% uh, for the prior period. Um, I expect this will accelerate further as there's simply no incentives for the, uh, the current three or four telco- telecom companies to change their behaviour. Do, do you think the government should just cut its losses, take a write-down and sell the NBN? Look, I think the NBN is the right thing for Australia and we do need high-speed broadband. Uh, this is the information age after all um, and the, the geographic nature of our country means that for the last 25 years there's never been a, a financial incentive for telecommunication companies to pull high-speed broadband and fibre to areas outside of the CBD, outside of apartment blocks, outside of dense population areas, um, dense business park areas. For the rest of Australia, uh, there's always there's never been an incentive to, to pull fibre there uh, and there was... You know, up until now, really, um, never an incentive to do that, just because the geography doesn't, the geography and the spread doesn't make sense. So there's a definitely a role for a government high-speed broadband uh, network. Um, that is the right thing for Australia. I think also there's also a, 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 an argument of um, you know, are all Australians equal? And you know, if you take the view they are, then you know, like electricity. Um, high-speed broadband, I think, is an essential part of life and information age, and I think there's a real role for government to make sure that all Australians benefit from that. You don't have to live in the inner city to, to experience that, or in the suburbs. Uh, so I think there's a real role there. I don't think it should, it's about making sure that the, that as, the as the industry has changed um, through consolidation, that the 
way the NBN interfaces with the rest of the industry is updated accordingly. And now to look at what's going on in the markets, here's Evan Lucas. Well, Evan, the first few couple of weeks of October, the market had a really good run, basically rising just about every day. But in the last week, it's been a bit flat. Is it just having a little uh, breather before uh, continuing to keep going or what, do you think? Well, that, that's, a, see, that's the question I've been asking myself. And what I've been noticing, you know, yes, we've been getting really good leads from, from overseas. So global markets have been doing almost exactly the same thing that we've been doing here in Australia. The lead out of the US is clearly very positive and their earnings season is is really driving their movements as well, not just, you know, macro thematics or, you know, politics coming out of Washington. Their price is actually being caught by their earnings rather than what normally happens during their earnings season where their price comes back down to their earnings because they've got ahead of themselves. From my perspective, looking at the ASX, I actually was watching what was going on in the banks. And I know we were starting the bank earnings season pretty much today. It's whether or not we were seeing a buy the rumour, sell the fact scenario or whether or not there was a structural upside to what they might present to us over this period. Having a look at it, if you look at the movement we've seen in the ASX, it's been pretty much backstopped by the banks moving up just a little bit more than what the ASX has had as, as they've sort of moved into that earnings season. And the results out of ANZ suggest that, that maybe, just maybe, solid results are not going to be enough. And the run-up has, has been a, yeah, a buy the rumour, sell the fact scenario, and, and maybe ANZ results are sort of forecasting what could happen over the next two to three weeks. Do you mean that the market is anticipating results from the big banks that they probably can't deliver? Uh, probably yes, and and what I mean by that is, again, it's still a very small sample because I've only really got ANZ and Bank of Queensland to go by. But their outlook for 2018 is clouded. There's no actual physical explanation of possible cash earnings or future growth expectations. They do point to possible headwinds, plus the growth profile the bank probably needs. Uh, sorry, the market probably needs to justify lagging higher hasn't yet been met. So I actually wanted to see, I mean, ANZ is a bit hard. There were some one-offs inside of it, but you want to see overall with the banks having EPS growth between sort of five and as much as, as 9%, possibly with dividend growth year on year up by about three or 4%. So far that hasn't happened either. I think all of that probably was needed to, to, to give the chance for the, for the market to, to back the banks are structurally changing and therefore can, can probably back the market to go towards 6,000 and even push through towards, you know, 6,100. Right. So what are the other big themes that you've been noticing in the last month or so? So the other themes I've been noticing is this, the, the continued cyclical decline in, in bulk commodities. And it's it's one area that I've, I moved away from probably around about four or five weeks ago as we went through the Chinese change that's going with the National People's Congress, also because we had seen an absolute ginormous run-up. I mean, basically a record in terms of, of Chinese imports of iron ore, et cetera, into China. All of that was slowing down, and you could see that the price was likely to come off. That's been continuing, and you can see that at the moment there is a structural decline in that space. It therefore also means, from my perspective, that the cyclical side of the market that has been a really, really positive part of our market pretty much almost for 12 months now is probably likely to also take a slight breather. So BHP, Rio, they're always good gauges to, to look at it, but you can also start to see it happening a little bit lower down. South 32 is also starting to show signs that it's also probably hit the, the top of its cyclical peak for this part of the cycle. 
all that's also what's starting to sort of filter into me. So unfortunately, from, from my perspective anyway, I'm also the market sort of holding around 5,800 points over the next six to eight or 12 months. Yes, we may get to 6,000 and we may even slightly go through it, but on a more sort of a six to 12 month period, there is just signs that cyclicality is probably moving towards the other end and, and possibly to a lower cycle. And, and banks clearly are telling you that they're going to find things just that little bit harder uh, than they have since the you know the housing led recovery from 2013 to now. So where are we finding excitement at the moment, apart from Bitcoin, of course? Apart from Bitcoin, and, and Bitcoin's for another another sort of discussion, because personally, the, the way Bitcoin's described as a currency makes me, uh, my stomach turn a little, but uh, let's let's leave that for in, another in day. The, in the stock market, where, what sort of excitement is there? In the stock market, at the moment, I, I am actually sort of, Excited by what's going on leading into things like construction. I'm excited by those that are exposed still to, to, to international markets and, and those that have got US exposure, those that have got European exposure, I think will be quite exciting next year. I think they're, you know, those two parts of the world are showing not only good growth, but, you know, positive signs of return from their own people. And I think that therefore also gets me slightly excited. It's, it's why. I actually think tomorrow with Macquarie is going to be an exciting result. I think you can also start looking at places like James Hardy and Borrell, despite the fact that they're telling you things have been slightly choppy. If you look at the construction numbers out of the US, they are positive and they are leveraged to that. It also, therefore, somewhat translates back here. If you look at construction in Australia, it's been moderating in the last six months, but overall it's been pretty positive in, in the in the 12 months preceding. So that's where I'm positive. I'm on positive on, on more of a, a really granular level. It's not, unfortunately, as easy as looking overreaching and looking at the ASX because we're unfortunately not a perfectly diversified market. But there are you know, pockets of excitement that I think you'll actually see coming through in, in the February actuals uh, in their half year numbers. I'm joined now by Joe Masters, Senior Economist at ANZ. Now, Joe, um, uh, you actually put out a note, a preview of the CPI uh, uh, predicting a, a soft number, but it actually came in a bit softer than you uh, expected. Well, that's right. The headline number was softer than expected, despite the fact that we got uh, very sharp increases in electricity and gas uh, bills, which is something that we had put into our forecast. But nonetheless, uh, CPI rose by 0.6 in the quarter and 1.8% over the year. When we look at underlying inflation, though, and that's the inflation measure that uh, trims out some of the um, measures that are not relevant for monetary policy, that came in at an average of 0.35% for the quarter, which was only a touch below our forecast. But, um, I mean, overall, do you think that core inflation is weakening now and that, and that as we come into 2018, we're looking at, a, uh, you know, at, at, at low inflation still? Look, I think inflation is still low. Um, I'm not sure, though, that it's decelerating. Uh, certainly the 0.35 print that we got this week for the third quarter does look a little bit on the soft side. But we do know that seasonally uh, the third quarter data is quite weak uh, and that while there are some areas of inflation that are experiencing very weak price pressures, particularly retail prices, there are parts of the economy that are seeing some inflation pressure, uh, particularly in the housing market, which does have quite a big weight in the CPI. I mean, clearly the, dis- the big distinction is between tradables and non-tradables um, because, you know, we're seeing domestic uh, products like electricity and gas, as you point out, you know, rising in price by well over the um, 3% target of the Reserve Bank. But tradables, we have deflation, right? I mean, it's hard to see how that's going to change. 
Look, I think that's right. I mean, what we're seeing with tradable inflation is a lot of uh, pricing competition from internet shopping and also from foreign retailers opening up actual stores in Australia. And of course, we have had a slightly stronger Australian dollar uh, recently, and that's also been passed on to consumers, passed on to weaker prices in retail. So as you said, when you look at across most components of actual retail items, uh, prices are actually falling, which of course you can argue is good for the consumer. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, we have got um, things like electricity and gas and private health and education. Those prices are rising much sharper than CPI. But what is encouraging in the data is we've also seen uh, some improvement in inflation or slightly higher inflation in domestic services. And that's actually quite closely correlated to wage growth. And that's the important piece coming forward. We need domestic price pressures to continue to rise to offset that weak tradable inflation and see the you know overall inflation rate back towards the RBA's 2 to 3% band. So where does all this leave you in your thinking about interest rates next year? Sure. Well, as you know, uh, we have uh, the RBA hiking twice next year with the first move in May. We're still comfortable with that move. Um, That view wasn't predicated on accelerating inflation. It does require inflation, though, to be stable at or around the bottom end of the RBA's band. But of course, the RBA looks at inflation 12 to 24 months uh, ahead of today. And and we continue to see core inflation gradually rising towards 2%, uh, mainly because we continue to see um, the labour market tightening and we think that wage growth will gradually rise and gradually feed into inflation. Uh, I think this uh, data that we got this week slightly weakens the case for rate hikes, but not enough for us to back away from that call. Rest in peace, Fats Domino, who died yesterday, aged 89. Here's a little bit of Blueberry Hill to remember him by. I found my thrill On Blueberry Hill On Blueberry Hill That's it for Talking Finance. Tell us what you think or give us some ideas for future stories at hello at theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler at The Constant Investor. Have a constant week.